0: Yes. Oh, I should do it. Yeah. I'm Jim Grant. I'm the editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, and uh, what I do for a living is write. Uh, I want to interview famous people, but who are famous, perhaps, for reasons that the public is not fully aware of. I hope to elicit from them uh, new thoughts, uh, frank admissions of things that they had not previously admitted to, and I want to get them to laugh on or twice. Hello viewers of Real Vision, this is a Jim Grant, and it is a great uh, privilege to be in the company today of William R. White, economist extraordinaire, international, uh, financial, what's, might be the noun here, certainly I authority, I dare say in the minds of some of the central bankers of the world, you're not only an authority, but also a rather troublesome one. I'm thinking back to the years 2003 and 4 when you said things that were not exactly welcomed. But uh, Bill White has made his reputation as one of the seemingly impossible combinations of, of, uh, of establishmentarian and original thinker. Who was it, Bill, who said that uh, uh, that when uh, brains impinge on experience, um, you get an idea, and sometimes that idea is not the one that is authorized from on high? And Bill White has made his career by thinking things that were not always authorized. He began uh, as uh, a young alumnus of, I guess, you, you had a University of Manchester PhD by the time you started with the Bank of England, did you not? It was 1969. Yes. At length, yes. You uh, uh, returned to your Canadian roots and uh, served with the Bank of Canada, finally rising to Deputy Governor over the course of 22 years. He was on to the Bank for International Settlements, the central banker's own Swiss bank. And there, uh, Bill headed the Monetary and Economics Department for upwards of 12 or 13 years. We know him principally by his work in the early aughts when uh, it appeared that everything was moderate and swimming and uh, financially uh, invulnerable. And uh, Bill, I'm thinking to the uh, famous Jackson Hole Conference of the year 2003. Oh, yes. And you and Claudio Barro. Uh, gave yourselves uh, some notoriety by presenting a paper that had to do with the imperfection of the state of affairs then ruling in international finance. And that seems to me, if I recall correctly, it had something to do with leverage, with interest rates, and with unintended consequences.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, it was that paper uh, that not necessarily uh, uh, distinguished Bill, but merely that it uh, was characteristic of the approach you have taken for well nigh five decades. I speak five decades respectfully as a fellow who was actually uh, uh, slightly older than God. And then uh, after this career in the BIS story, career in the BIS, it was on to the OECD and the now the uh, CD Howe Institute in Toronto, but Bill's currently speaking to us from quarantine in London, England. And uh, after that somewhat windy uh, introduction, Bill, welcome to Real Vision. <laughs>
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a, and it's a great pleasure to be interviewed by by you in particular.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm more than pleased to be here. So, um, I want to divide this into two or three parts. One of which is to do with the uh, the arc, the monetary arc of uh, preceding the, the the big, the truly big bang of 2007, 8, and 9. But that is somewhat historic, and not all of our viewers share our interest in that long ago episode dare say so they should. But I want to begin, before we get into the backstory, I want to begin with a, a question or two about uh, uh, the moment. And um, I want to ask you, you're, you're an authority on, on, on bubbles, having, first of all, asserted that they could exist in a world of conscientious central bank administration. <laughs> in the light of uh, your work in the area of excesses, unintended consequences, and bubbles, Tell us, Bill, know, uh, is there a bubble today, and if so, where might it be?
1: Well, Jim, the story that I was telling uh, well before the pandemic arrived uh, was that, in fact, uh, we were in another unsustainable bubble, uh, an accident that was waiting to happen. Uh, all that was required was the trigger. And as it turned out, the trigger came from a totally unexpected place, which was the uh, pandemic, at least unexpected by the economists, it was the pandemic. But the the conditions beforehand uh, struck me as being classic sort of pre-crisis conditions, uh, which was um, uh, leverage, uh, huge expansion in debt. I mean, if you take a look, for example, at the IIF numbers on global debt, as a proportion of global GDP, uh, they were actually up 50 percentage points from 2008 uh, through to the last quarter prior to the pandemic. So if one thought about sort of, you know, the the great financial contraction as being a period of deleveraging in which we went back to normal, it was the very opposite. The leverage went uh, continued to go way, way up. Uh, And all around the world, not just in a few countries, but but basically globally. And then you looked at the spreads which were coming down. You looked at the level of uh, equity prices, particularly in the United States, uh, P-E ratios. like All of those things seemed to me to indicate that we were in troublesome territory. And as I say, it was, um, in a sense, an accident waiting to happen. And the pandemic now, of course, is only... Uh, made it significantly worse, not just because of the supply side implications of the pandemic, but because the reaction of the governments, in a sense, rightly, but nonetheless, a reaction that has made the underlying debt problems significantly more worse than they were before. Yeah. So yes, we have we have some issues out
0: there as we speak. Yeah. Bill, you know, to me the, the most extraordinary single fact about uh, our finances today. Is the level of securities debt securities price to yield less than nothing on a nominal basis? And <clears throat> a while ago, not so long ago, the figure was 17 trillion, with a T mm. plus. And uh, you know, on the authority of, uh, of uh, Dick Sillas and uh, Sidney Homer's history of interest rates, these are the lowest rates in let's see, t- t- ever, uh, <laughs> four thousand years, and um, certainly the. Uh, the level of, uh, of bonds and, and notes priced to yield less than nothing is a new thing under the sun. Uh, would you venture the hypothesis that there is a bubble in debt? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there a bubble in bonds that is an investment? As a, you are, uh, I know you're not a professional speculator, but uh, uh, does this strike you as a characteristic investment excess? I mean, there are people, that, very successful people who have made whole career by being long bonds from the uh, the peak in yields in September of 30, or 1981 to the present. And there is a, there is a, a body of theory, almost an ideology, almost of a canon of, of belief that has grown up around the invincibility of the asset class of bonds. And you see this in the hypothesis regarding uh, perpetual de- you know, de- deflation or uh, you yeah, know what's what's the term from the the 30s uh, that secular oh secular stagnation that's the uh, secular stagnation
1: uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it sort of came out a bit later but the, yeah. the same kind of thing yeah you know, Larry Summers has been pushing this for quite some period of time
0: okay. so yeah. what are, you, are you a buyer a seller of bonds we gotta know Bill <laughs> <laughs> the
1: um, the truth is that the bond rates are are low because the central banks have been caught in a kind of debt trap. And what I mean by that is that every time that there's been a slowdown, and this really goes down sort of 30 30 years or more, it goes back to 1987 at least with the Greenspan put and maybe even before that. But in any event, let's start off with 1987, which is long enough ago. Uh, So we had the kind of Greenspan put. But the basic message was when the economy is in trouble, looks as if it's going to turn down or the financial markets look as if they're in trouble. The answer is lower the interest rates and print the money. The problem is that when you do that, you simply encourage an accumulation of more private sector debt and potentially even more public sector debt because the public sector knows that it can finance its increased expenditures at a reasonable rate of interest. So you get this expansion of debt that over a period of time, Chairman Greenspan rightly characterized as generating headwinds so that you get an immediate positive effect through this monetary easing. But the medium to longer term effect is an increase in debt, which actually works in the very opposite direction. And this continues, and it has continued since the late 1980s. But the accumulation of debt has now got to such a point, okay, and the interest rates have been lowered to such a point repeatedly, cycle after cycle that we now have a situation where the central banks know, I think increasingly, that the path on which they have embarked is unsustainable. But they're so far down the path that they can't get off it by raising rates. Because in raising rates, they create the very problem that they're trying to avoid. So we've gotten ourselves to a place that's been a very long path but we've gotten ourselves to a place where we don't want to be. So your question really is, what takes us off that path? I would contend that debt of any sort, if it's unproductive debt, which much of the debt we have is now unproductive debt, essentially narrows the path. And you can fall off that narrow path in one of two directions. And one of them is the debt deflation direction, which is what I think we're probably heading for short term. The other one, you could fall off in the inflationary direction. And which side basically determines how you feel about bonds? Now I guess my sense of it is that over the course, and I could well be wrong here, okay, it's tipping points all the way and who knows where they go, you know, when they emerge. We, I think we're going to fall off on the debt deflation side, in which case monetary easing will continue. The bond rates will continue to stay very low. Uh, whether they will go any further, I guess I have more doubts about that. But I think the, 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 the likelihood that they will stay quite low for an extended period is reasonably great. Having said that, if the central banks finding themselves in this situation say as indeed many people recommend, okay, that you simply double down on monetary expansion and fiscal expansion, okay, and fiscal expansion for the first time, then this combination of a lot of fiscal stimulus supplemented by central bank financing could very easily lead you into a world of fiscal dominance, where the expectations suddenly start to shift. And if that happens, then you're into an inflationary world where, obviously, bonds is the last place that you want to be. So I suspect it will be near-term deflation and longer-term inflation, and potentially even very high inflation. Because once these processes get out of the box, it's very hard to rein them in. We've seen this over and over in terms of
0: historical experiments. Yeah. Bill, you have been around central bankers. Indeed, you have been one of them for most of your career. What is wrong with these people? And I'm going to uh, illustrate with a story from the American game of baseball. All right, so you've got to imagine uh, journeyman second baseman named Dick Schofield. He plays for the St. Louis Cardinals, right? And and the formidable, uh, looming Bob Gibson, one of the great pitchers of all time, is sitting in a dugout when Schofield strikes out, as he so frequently does. Schofield comes back to the bench. He proceeds to throw a tantrum. He slams his helmet on the floor. He, dra- he breaks his bat. He swears up a blue storm. And Gibson says, come over here, please. He says, look, look. Here is your batting average. It's two thirty. What did you expect? All right. What do the central bankers expect? The Fed has seven hundred and something PhDs. I don't. I know you're a PhD. I don't mean to disparage the title. These people have not uh, have heard once or twice about this unintended consequences business, and yet they persist. In uh, administering the most critical, certainly consequential rate in capitalism, which is the basic rate of of interest, right? We call it price control in other contexts. So, my question to you is what do they expect when they manipulate this most consequential price and generate behavior that they deplore in their speeches but nonetheless egg on in their actions? What do they expect? Well,
1: I've been around this community now for pretty close on to 50 years, and let me assure you that uh, most of the people that you're talking about are enormously smart people, and their hearts are in the right place, and they're wanting to do good. Um, The fundamental problem is, in a sense, not with the central bankers, but with the analytical framework that these people have bought into an analytical framework that unfortunately, from my perspective, is wrong. And the fundamental error that I think has been made is not even an economic error. It's a philosophical error. It's an epistemological error. They have made an assumption about the character of the economic system that is wrong. They're starting off with the idea that the system is comprehensible, it's understandable, and it's controllable. And my view, and it has been for quite some period of time, is that this is wrong, that the starting assumption ought to be the economy is a complex, adaptive system, and it has characteristics, including unintended consequences, that are not present in models or analytical frameworks that assume the system is comprehensible and controllable. So the fundamental mistake is an analytical mistake, which is basically coming out of the universities, and something I know given your long history of of interest in economic history, I think one of the biggest mistakes that the universities ever made was, was to stop giving courses in the history of economic thought. Uh, where many of the unintended consequences are, in fact, given pride of place, um, and also economic history that demonstrates that systems don't equilibrate, uh, that they are not um, operating towards equilibrium all the time, um, and that really bad things can happen. So I don't think these are dumb people. I think the the fundamental problem is buying into the wrong analytical framework.
0: Yeah, well, for smart people, they certainly make the same mistake over and over again. There's a guy named uh, William Goldman, one of the great screenwriters of Hollywood. And one day uh, he wrote, you know, Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and other such films. And uh, one day he had had his, finally had his fill of the studio heads predicting some outcome for the success of the movie. And he said, you know what? Nobody knows anything. That's right. Nobody knows anything about nothing. Right. And uh, certainly the point survives the exaggeration. And in regard to this complex system that the uh, conceited authorities at central banks think they have mastered, um, they don't know nothing, actually. Um, uh, The dynamic uh, stochastic uh, general equilibrium model what is that?
1: Well, it's based on the but what is the premise that we have a relatively simple system, which is invariant over time, and which can be understood and controlled, and it has certain characteristics, not least of which is that inflation relatively quickly uh, goes to the level that the central banks want it to go to. Uh-huh. That if um, the real side of the economy is shocked away from full employment. It will rapidly go back to that situa-
0: uh-huh. it will rapidly go back to that equilibrium. Uh-huh. And as I've suggested, yeah. these right. premises are so wrong. This is still an operation. This is still a basic macroeconomic forecasting model in the central banks is not.
1: To be yeah. honest, um, I don't know. There's an old colleague of mine, however, Scott Roger, who wrote a piece for the IMF a number of years ago. And his contention was that in practice, uh, the models have less emphasis, they receive less emphasis than you might think. Uh, The central bankers are always sort of um, thinking in terms of their own analytical framework. The problem is that the analytical framework, whether it's one equation or 100, uh, tends to have the same sort of underlying premise and that's that's the thing that's wrong. And when you talk about humility, the thing about complex systems, adaptive systems in particular, is that they do have tipping points. Uh, they are highly nonlinear, they have unintended consequences. and the central the central thing that comes out of that is that if you're trying to control them or
0: influence them, you should be humble in terms of your capacity to do so.. Yeah. You know, you, you look at these uh, the learned analytical papers that uh, come out in such profusion from the research departments of the Federal Reserve and I dare say from other central banks as well. And you look at the citations and the attached bibliographies and none of them, almost none, uh, is dated uh, any older than 10 years before the publication date of the paper. There is a positively myopic focus on the analytical uh apparatus, pretense, whatever the word might be, of the present, you know, um, uh, writing in the 1850s and the 60s, Walter Badgett, the, uh, the muse of modern central banking, uh, famously said that uh, apropos of the national figurehead of Britain, John can stand anything, but he can't stand two percent. This, he uttered this uh, great epigram in the wake of the, you know, the nth speculative bubble uh, that was egged on through very low interest rates. So we observed that low interest rates cause people to do strange things with money, things they wouldn't do. It's as if they were under the influence of a, some abusive substance. But this bit of uh, non-quantified, homely folk wisdom seems to have eluded the formidable intelligences that run our monetary institutions, and I want to know why. I got to know why, Bill.
1: I, I am, I mean, you 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 know this as well as I do. Um, <clears throat> you go back to people like uh, Thomas Kuhn in the theory of scientific revolutions, where he talks about paradigm shifts and how difficult it is, even in the realm of science, uh, to get a paradigm yeah. shift. And um, they- Darwin, Darwin spent 10 years before he was prepared to... Uh, to 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 publish Copernicus was on his deathbed, and in both instances it was because of concern about what right-thinking people would think. Paradigms are hard to shift in whatever area, yeah. and our difficulty is we have a paradigm which needs to shift, uh, but getting that shift is proving well. I've been battling my you know bumping my head against this now for 25 years, so I I know how hard it is to change people's
0: views. Yeah. What is a Canadian doing in the business of monetary trouble? I ask this because uh, Canadian banks famously do not fail. Um, some put this down to the phlegmatic national character of Canada, which is perhaps oh, yeah. perhaps it's a uh, it's it's a, it's a conceit of the uh, speculative North uh, Americans. But um, you know, Bray Hammond, uh, famous uh, famous to me. Uh, author of uh, one of the most marvelous banks, uh, books on financial history, *A Banking and Politics in America from the Revolution and the Civil War*, uh, devotes a, a chapter, this Canadian does, to uh, Canadian banking, and he points out that it has tended to be oligarchic, as has been the politics of Canada over the course of. You know, he said that uh, that uh, sometimes the Canadians are more royal than the, than the House of Windsor. And that there, there are ever so few banks in Canada, and still fewer failures. So my question to you is, uh, uh, what are the Canadians doing that we're not doing, and why has a Canadian become one of the foremost authorities on on bank failures?
1: Well, I, I'm not sure that that's the case. I I do think that there's more attention being paid, uh, particularly in the light of the pandemic, but 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 even before. To the question of the resilience and the sustainability of systems, uh, that efficiency isn't everything. And this is where you get into some tricky stuff when it comes to banking, because um, it may well be that a degree of consolidation uh, that allows um, competition, but nevertheless, a, a, a level of profits that can be plowed back into sort of higher capital and greater resilience has got something to say for itself. Uh, Whether the Canadians have got it exactly right, because there there always is in a sense a trade-off between efficiency now and resiliency going forward, whether they've got the optimal position, that I'm not in a position to say, but certainly there's something there's something to be said for,
0: um, for that, that range of territory. Bill, we are looking, uh, some of us are really rooting for the year 2021. It's hardly be worse, but uh, next year brings uh, three, if you ask me, three seminal anniversaries. One is the 100th anniversary of the Depression of 1920 21, which ended with high interest rates and with a balanced federal budget, I'm talking about the United States of America. That's one anniversary. The second anniversary is the 50th of the uh, end of Bretton Woods that stopped in 1971. And um, the third anniversary is the 40th of the great bond bull market that began in 1981. So this uh, this trifecta of anniversaries, it can't be without meaning, right? There are no accidents. (laughs) So I, take- well, I was just thinking.
1: My, uh, I know you. You. You wrote a book about the, the Great Depression of. Uh, what, what was the title? Remind me again. The uh,
0: Forgotten Depression, which uh, which which it, uh, unfortunately my book has not actually changed that state of affairs. The depression is still, by and large, forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that the,
1: there's a wonderful line. I'm sure you know this, but uh, it was new to me. Sir Joshua, Sir Joshua Stamp. In 1922, looking back on the, on the recession in Britain in 1921. He said, and maybe there's something for us looking forward, quote, it was the failure of an anticipated inflation to materialize. It was exactly the feeling that you get when you walk up the steps in the dark and put your foot on a step that isn't there. <laughs> and I wonder now, in the light of um, what's going on with everybody being so convinced that inflation can't happen because of all of the arguments that I've just mentioned, that they've become oblivious to the fact that these are just arguments that say it might not happen. There's certainly not arguments strong enough to say that it can't happen. Ah, and it would be very interesting to see if this kind of inflationary push, let's say arising from changing demographics, okay, this is a big element that it seems to me that the Fed has has missed really for decades.
0: All right. So so let's, the implication
1: let's that that has for inflation, maybe for more inflation going forward, yeah. as the baby boomers go out, as China's working... Population goes
0: down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm still building my case against these pe- these people, these people, the central bankers. And bear with me a second. So uh, we're going to get around to uh, uh, Charles Goodhart and he and his uh, co-authors' view of inflation, which you have studied. Uh, but I want to first want to propose to you that the uh, that is not so much a paradigm shift the central bankers have missed, but rather it has been their inattention to uh, to the time honored. Uh, observations of people who uh, have been around and seen cycles and, and understand that anyway. So apropos 1921. Um, to my mind, what allowed that uh, cycle to end was the price mechanism, was a free play of prices. Uh, wages fell in in uh, almost in parallel with profits, and companies were able to reestablish profitability at lower levels of nominal wages and prices. All right, so uh, compare and contrast 1929, 1930, 31, Herbert Hoover wanted to uh, put the kibosh on, on uh, falling wages and he called in the industrials and they said, no no cutting wages because we can't have that. Not like 21. All right. So, so my proposal to you is that central bankers, let's fast forward, having missed the benign supply shock of the early odds with the internationalization labor market with free trade. Benign, I say, uh, except perhaps if you're out of a job. But still, the the supply shock that that uh, that, uh, that uh, generated uh, so much business activity and so much GDP—they missed that. They, they missed the nature of that. That, to me, signals that the the central bankers, as a class of intellect, are unobservant about capitalism, about markets. They don't trust them, and I will. I will further add to this windy question by observing that this shines through in their insistence on administering interest rates rather than letting them be discovered in the marketplace. So there, there must be a question there someplace, Bill. <laughs> but the, the question is Are central bankers, as a class of person, anti capitalist or anti market? And is this not their abiding sin? It is going to cost us, has cost us, will cost us dearly. Well, I,
1: I go back to what I was saying before the the, the, the fundamental mistake was to assume um, that the economy is somehow deterministic and controllable and they determine- I, I think the proper model really is an evolutionary, a biological uh-huh. model. so uh-huh. and of course there's a long history of this. I mean going back to Veblen and 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 beyond that the proper way to think about it, And this Schupaterian in a certain way, too. What's really important is the birth of new companies and the death of old ones and this evolutionary process that it's the dynamic that brings the growth. And I mean, this is the thing that in a way does strike me as, as odd, but I think it has to do with the analytical framework. It's all to do, there's a presumption that efficiency is everything. That somehow, that if you use the resources you have available in an efficient way, okay, to produce the maximum amount today, that that's all there is to it, where the reality is the big gains come from the dynamism of, of an evolving economy. And I do fear, actually, that one of the things that these low interest rates have done uh, and ultra easy money is that they have had a negative effect on the supply potential of the economy. But certainly what we're observing more and more, right? And in the United States as well, uh, are these zombie companies, you know, companies that don't really make enough profits even to cover their own interest rates, sorry, their own interest payments, and so the banks, because they don't want to recognize the fact That their capital is going to take a hit, or they're hoping that, you know, like Mr. Macabre, that something might just turn up for their clients. So um, they've been keeping these zombie companies alive. And one of the difficulties, of course, is that because you've got this extra productive capacity still out there, it's pushing down prices. Okay. But at the same time, these companies are still absorbing the capital and the labor that the other competitors might conceivably want to use. So it keeps up their input costs. So these zombies are are really causing problems for the new competitors. And it's the new competitors, it's the guys in garages, right, who don't actually have any collateral, who can't get the the new lending to -hmm. allow them to become effective participants in the capitalist economy. So there's definitely something there in terms of unintended consequences of easy money for the supply side of the economy.
0: You have to wonder after a while, given the repetitive demonstration of of the negative consequences of persistent easy money, whether you can actually call these consequences unintended they might be bungled consequences, but how can they not understand these people with their finger on the scale of interest rates that there are consequences, much like the ones you have just described? Can
1: I say, we? I mean, we've been focusing here, here on the sort of the analytical challenges faced by central banks. And, you know, maybe they believe everything that they're saying or maybe they don't. Uh, but there is another side to it, too, which I think has to be recognized, which is the political economy side of it. And I think what that means is that certainly coming out of the great contraction in 2009 and 2010, fiscal went into reverse very, very quickly. Uh, I think there was a a sort of sense that everybody might become like Greece. And so however that worked, fiscal went into negative mode, went into contractionary mode. And that left monetary policy basically holding the bag. The regulatory side, okay, also went into negative mode that the whole sort of concern of the regulators, it seems to me, okay, before they had properly resolved the debt problems that came out of the Great Contraction, they were working very assiduously to try to change the regulatory framework to prevent another crisis, And what they did was basically contractionary. So the central banks found themselves in a way, willy-nilly, the only game in town. And if you said to me what would I have recommended that they do differently, I guess I would have said around 2010, probably I did say it around 2010, was the central banks should have been saying to the governments, we have a collective insolvency problem here. The debt levels are too high to be sustainable, okay, at normal interest rates. Central banks cannot deal with insolvency problems. We can only deal with illiquidity problems. And you want us to proceed as if it were an illiquidity problem. And that, I think, was a fundamental mistake. But again, you have to imagine the kind of pressure on these guys to want to believe, as it were, their own rhetoric, because everybody else desperately wanted to believe the rhetoric that the central banks had it under control. Yeah. So it's always it's always more complicated than you would think. Eh? Yeah. That's it's the, even uh, more complicated than a fool or a knave. Sometimes there's other
0: considerations to take to be into sure. account. That efficiency is not after all uh, the one and only criteria. Let me ask you about uh, another aspect of the uh, dear dead days uh, before modernity uh, took over the world of money and banking. Uh, up until the uh, early decades of the 20th century, there was something called a, a capital call go out to the owners of common equity banking institutions when they got impaired or insolvent, and stockholders would get a capital call up to the par value of their shares, and they would have to stump up uh, what they could uh, to make the liability holders present the depositors whole. And so that, so that was superseded by deposit insurance. But couldn't you make the case that the regulatory overreach in the wake of the Trials of 2007 eight and nine. The regulatory outreach was a consequence of the, of the, of the misplacement uh, of the incentives on the part of the owners of leveraged financial institutions. You know, so, so uh, why is it that the taxpayers uh, are there when uh, there is an insolvency problem, but not there when it's time to cut the melon? Uh, no bonuses for the taxpayers, no dividends for the taxpayers. So, so this to me has poisoned the well of our politics. And having made this little sermon to you, Bill, I'm going to make. I'm going to propose <laughs> a hypothesis. This is apropos. Getting back to the uh, three, um, the three-pronged anniversaries of next year, I'm going to pose to you that the the monetary affairs and the governance of financial institutions. We have gone backwards for the past 100 years. Evolution has worked in reverse. There ain't no Whig theory of money. There is retrogression. We have gone from a system of individual responsibility for financial outcomes to a collective responsibility. And we have gone from a more or less disciplined Bretton Woods regime to a kind of make your own adventure, print your way out of it. Fiat system that has actually astounded even those who thought it was uh, unbalanced and rather out of control ten years ago. So, what about it? What do you say? Is have we not yet gone backwards? And this will lead to the next question of how the heck do we get out of this and where do we go from here? But what about it? Would you agree? Well,
1: or- I've been writing about this for sort of long periods of time and basically have come to the conclusion that both the monetary regime and the regulatory regime are unsustainable. And uh, the monetary regime, uh, really all the stuff we've been talking about, which is that uh, if you're going to cycle after cycle, use monetary stimulus and debt accumulation uh, to move forward when the debt accumulation in the end means you're moving backwards, non-sustainable. The regulatory side seems to me to be much the same. And there's a kind of, again, a kind of convoluted process that leads you to a place where you don't want to be. So you start off by saying uh, there's runs on banks. Okay. Uh, And I'll get back to that in a second. There's runs on banks. Well, that's costly. So we have to have safety nets to stop that. And you say, oh, but safety nets, that's moral hazard. Say well to deal with the moral hazard, we have regulation, but the regulation just breeds evasion, and then you have the secondary banking system. You get a run in the secondary banking system. You say, oh gee whiz, we need safety nets, you know. So you extend the safety net as they did the last time around, and this has been going on for two hundred years, okay? And so it continues, and now we've got the asset management companies, uh, where the sort of the evaders have gone to, and we'll wait and see how it works out. But the whole point is that it's fundamentally, it's a path that is not sustainable. And we got on the path, some people would say, because the banks where this whole thing began uh, were put in a position where there wasn't enough capital to convince everybody that there was no need to run because it was enough capital to support the institution. So I think that was a big mistake Way back when, and I can remember in the UK when they sort of went from these sort of mutual companies to limited liability companies. Uh, when the banks, for example, um, who was it who said who had that um, interview with Barrons and basically said the basic mistake in the states was when, when they let the big banks uh, be, basically issue shares and <laughs> got rid of the got rid of the responsibility of the owners. To back
0: any of the losses, there's, well, a, there's a lot to be said for that. There was one lonely general partnership left in the city of New York's financial community. That's the Brown Brothers Harriman.
1: It's the only now, one left, eh?
0: Yeah, the partners go to sleep at night knowing that they, their houses, their golden retrievers, and their Picasso's are at risk to the uh, liability holders of the partnership, yeah, of which, by the it, way, is precious little liability.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all uh, it's Doctor Johnson again, you know. When a man is to be hanged in a fortnight, depend upon it, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. (laughs) So if you know you 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 know you're going to lose everything, those twelve guys and women will sit around the table and have a really deep think about what it all might mean. I I'm I'm sympathetic to uh, to that. And um, now, what's the way out of it? I mean, for a starter. Um, if we do have a huge debt overhang problem, and I believe we do, and we're seeing it now, for example, in the, in the emerging markets, not least in uh, the, the low-income countries, where uh, the implications of trying to maintain debt service in the middle of a COVID pandemic is, well, leave it to your imagination to figure out what the implications of that will be. But debt, uh, debt restructuring is, is, is very important. Uh, in the current circumstances before even thinking about where we go from here. And um, I know from my own personal experience, uh, WP1 at the OECD has been on about inadequate bankruptcy and restructuring laws um, for, for years. Uh, the G30 wrote a piece here about two years ago, I think, about, uh, again, the same range of territory. The IMF has been on about it. Carmen Reinhart has been writing about it for years. Our procedures, our judicial administrative procedures for dealing with debt, and not least sovereign debt, for which there are no agreed principles, uh, even principles, much less practices, Uh, we've got huge problems there. And nobody seems to be willing to address them in a serious way, because I guess if they do. They're implicitly saying we might actually have to use these procedures, and they don't want to admit that that's the end game. But it is the end game, and we should be getting on with improving all of those procedures to restructure debt. So, in, in a nutshell, orderly debt restructuring, orderly debt restructuring is an awful lot less costly than disorderly debt restructuring.
0: Right. But how is the very concept of orderly debt restructuring going to play in a market in which? Credit spreads are so very tight, and the level of nominal interest rates so very low. Um, Is there not going to be a a quick rethink of what people are paying for these securities, and perhaps uh, the beginning of a bear market in sovereign credit? It's um,
1: clearly it's it's a worry when you start moving from one regime to the next. I mean, I talked earlier on about. It's um, debt deflation coming down the road. Oh, whoops! No, it's not. It's inflation. Um, you it's know, like, like it says in,
0: something like that. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know, like it says in the Bible, in the twinkling of an eye. Um, well, it may well be the same thing with regime change with respect to debt restructuring. You know, one minute it doesn't seem like it's an issue. The next minute, it's plausible it might happen, and I'm out of here. And um, I, have no, I have no answer for that. Um, I guess what I might say is that I hope an awful lot of work is going on, as the French would say, dans les coulisses, you know, in the off the scenes, to do with debt restructuring and getting things ready for a different world that people are not talking
0: about. But I, I'm not sure that, that that's happening. The, I don't know. Might this be the post-Jubilee world? POST-Jubilee world. Yes, after after student loans, uh, sovereign debt, uh, and the like are forgiven, um, you know, do you see anything like a, a massive movement, a coordinated movement on on, uh, on haircutting debt or forgiving debt? I think this the great the great
1: problem, and it's always been the same. Right? Is um, in a sense the free rider problem, which is that everybody knows that if they would all cooperate to get an orderly debt restructuring. They would all wind up better off than if they had a disorderly restructuring, but everybody's hoping that everybody else will get together and solve the problem and they'll be the last man standing. And uh, judgments, for example, like the MNL against uh, uh, Argentina uh, didn't exactly help because it indicated that if you were the last man standing, you'd get paid out. And so now there's this great tendency for everybody to say, why should I cooperate? I'll just stay uh, stay doing, staying uncooperative. And at the end of the day, I'll wind up uh, getting all the money. And we've got a world in which you've got private creditors, public creditors in the advanced countries. And now the not unimportant presence of Chinese creditors, you know, now playing out in the Zambian case, everybody is basically inclined to say, why should I cooperate to the benefit of the other guy? I'm not saying what we're what we're facing is uh, going to be easy. Um, all I'm saying is it seems to me it may be the only, only way to proceed.
0: Bill, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, about this business about uh, uh, record levels of debt. Uh, there are those in the financial community who would say yes, record levels of debt and record levels of assets. And there is a body of contention, if not a rigorous theory, called monetary, modern monetary theory that uh, uh, goes back, I guess, to heyday was in the uh, uh, 1940s, Abba Lerner wrote uh, essays that were very cogent and uh, seemed very persuasive, and indeed, today, they do persuade. Do,
1: do you and, remember in the original, this is all sort of hearsay, it's an essay that I read a little while ago about that period, and Abba Lerner Apparently said what he said at a meeting in in Washington. Apparently, and Keynes was there, and Keynes listened to Lerner and he said something to the effect of, "No, that's just humbug. The government debt can't rise
0: forever." That's what he said. Yeah. Well, uh, Stephanie Kelton, who was the doyen of modern monetary theory, has a comeback to that because I taxed her with the Keynes line. I thought the Keynes line was. Uh, uh, yeah, God, it kind of sounds good, but God help us if it ever gets implemented. I think or something like that. But um, anyway, so the, the essence of this is, of course, that uh, one, <laughs> if you're a monetary sovereign, if you have control over your own currency, um, you can, with a especially compliant central bank, you can create interest rates such that the debt is never a burden. And you must remember, say the MMT enthusiasts, that uh, uh, federal debt. Is somebody's asset, so we owe it to ourselves, in effect. And this mm-hmm. idea has got traction. And uh, uh, what's your comment? And uh, what does it say about the intellectual zeitgeist that this, this has become rather a popular member
1: Well, the first point to make about assets and liabilities is that um, most of the liabilities have got a fixed nominal principal repayment that always stays the same in nominal terms, whereas the value of the assets, as we well know, can fluctuate significantly. My recollection, and I bow to your historical studies greater than my own, is that uh, during the Great Depression, uh, that stock prices fell 90%. In Japan, uh, after the great Japanese contraction, stock prices fell. 90%. 90%. So, you know, but the liabilities were still there. So that's point number one. On modern monetary theory, the, the, in a sense, the dangerous part about MMT is that what they are recommending at the moment is precisely what I think most people would say needs to be done, which is um, monetary ha- policy having, in a sense, outlived its effectiveness. We now need fiscal policy to sort of uh, fill in the cracks, and that fiscal policy will be made more effective by interest rates staying low. And so we say, okay, that's fine for the immediate future. But this is where the problem, you know, and, and we talked earlier on about extrapolation. You know, you do stuff that works, and people have a tendency to say, well, more of it will work even better. You know, it's like 12 drinks after two drinks. Um, the difficulty will be going forward with this kind of hypothesis because modern monetary theory, as far as I can understand it, and I haven't read Kelton's book yet, but I certainly will do. I've read all sorts of other stuff, you know, Randall Ray stuff and others. The emphasis on inflation, it goes back to what I was talking about before with complex adaptive systems, there's sort of a sentiment that it is. That inflation is the only thing to worry about, and it is easily controllable. And I would say on both counts, they're wrong. Okay, let's start with it. Is it easily controllable? I think in a world of fiscal dominance, uh, and I said this earlier on in this conversation, in a world of fiscal dominance, where the fiscal system is becoming more and more um, unsustainable, you're back into um, a Sergeant Wallace world. Do you remember the the famous article by Sergeant Wallace um, back in the early 1990s, I think? And it was called rather ominously some unpleasant monetarist arithmetic. And basically what it said was just because you think you've got the money supply under control, if the fiscal situation is bad enough, it will finish by blowing you out of the water. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that, you know, could could happen. So inflation is not easily controllable, necessarily controllable. And secondly, it's not the only thing to worry about. Because we're continuing now with this modern monetary theory. The basic idea is, you know, very easy supplemented by fiscal expansion, but the very easy money is a thing that is creating all of the problems, the unintended consequences that we were talking about before. So it's still more of of the same. It's already led us to a place where we don't want to be. So I look at it as, at the moment, it seems to be giving a policy prescription that is sort of what lots of other people would say, perhaps including myself. But it's the future that bothers me, that we've sort of gone one step further down a path that we don't want to go down, and we should be thinking very seriously, reflecting on its unsustainability of how we get off that path, and then how we set up a new system so we don't ever do this
0: again. Of course, we'll do it again. We're human beings. <laughs> hey, Bill, I you know what, you know what journalists do for a living? They ask rude questions. All right, what are you doing with your own money? Come on. Well, you know, I was in
1: Switzerland for twenty five years, and um, basically, I had a barbell strategy. So I was um, heavily into property and um, and cash, effectively. Ah. And I've been sort of pushing the idea for a long period of time that uh, this would all come unstuck. And as I said to you before about the narrow path, basically you could fall off one direction or another and add the cash for the deflation, cash and bonds, right?
0: Okay. For deflation and property for inflation. That's that's one indiscreet question. The second indiscreet question, perhaps given your ties to the central banking world, If you were running the Fed now, which for all I know, you might be in a strange, strange year, 2020. But if you're running the Fed, what would you do? I would be
1: spending um, a lot of time at the Treasury uh, trying to get them to um, formulate and then um, communicate their policy for dealing with the federal debt overhang over time and restoring um, the assurance of stability, uh, not just to the American people, but to everybody else. Because you've got to remember, I mean, you, you, you know this as well as I do, the dollar is still at the heart of everything in terms of international commerce. And if we have a serious problem with respect to the dollar. And its role in the international financial system, everybody's got a problem. So that would be that would be my advice. Erase, erase. Um, to get this thing under control. Advi- advising attempts to restructure private sector debt in the measure that it can be done, um, and then gradually—and I say gradually—starting to reestablish more normal monetary conditions. So I guess my order would be for better or for worse, and none of these, we're we're in a place where we don't want to be. I guess I would say we should be thinking about orderly debt restructuring. We should then be thinking about restoring financial monetary normality, and then we should be thinking about fiscal restraint when the situation is under better control. Can anything go wrong in the path? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, normal normal monetary conditions would seem to imply a funds rate closer to four than to zero, or three to zero. But The last time the Fed tried to lift the funds rate, the stock market broke, and the Fed came out and said, oops, uh, sorry about that. So it seems, anyway, that's it. Hey, um, Bill, does the name Felix Somary, S-O-M-A-R-Y, mean anything to you? Felix was your predecessor. Felix Somary was was um, a guy who uh, made a reputation for himself as one of the great prophets of the, uh, of the 1920s, 1930s. Felix Omery was a, was a private banker and uh, as a, as a, he called himself a political meteorologist. And he worked for an outfit called uh, Blankhart and Company in Zurich. This comes to me from a, a, a very good book called uh, 1931 by Tobias Straumann. S-T-R-A-U-M-A-N-N. And in this book, Somere, uh, who studied at the University of Z- uh, Vienna and worked as an assistant to Karl Menger, the great Austrian economist. So uh, Samurai was uh, a banker who uh, tried to tell people that the debt restructurings after World War I were in fact fundamentally and uh, tragically flawed and that there would be hell to pay for it and that the prosperity of the 20s was to that just that degree rather than an illusion than a fact. And he made a name for himself by being a calamity howler. And uh, he encountered Keynes in 1926 and somewhere he told Keynes that uh, that uh, you know he was no, he was not interested in talking about stocks. What he wanted Keynes to understand was that there would be a reckoning for the Miss uh Miss uh, the bungled. Uh, debt reordering of the late teens and early 20s. And Keynes was uh, skeptical and said, we will not have any more crashes in our time. So this gets me to my question to you. Uh, Keynes, uh, uh, one more preliminary uh, summary, um, uh, was taxed in the summer of 1929 at a bankers conference in Europe by none other than Charles E. Mitchell, who was the head of what is today Citicorp. And even then, Citibank was accident prone. and, uh, and Mitchell said to Somarie, he said, uh, always bearish, always wrong. And he called him the uh, uh, the Raven of Zurich. It Mitchell was Mitchell's. <laughs> Raven of Zurich. So you're like the Raven of Toronto. <laughs> okay. So here's, here's what Somarie said about his experiences. Um, he said, quote, in the 20s, I was completely isolated. And my urgent warnings to governments as well as to the business world were universally held against me. "Close quote." Is that you? Was that you?
1: Um, Um, No. The honest truth is, I have been on. um, I was making a presentation at the AEI, for example, about a year ago, and I was on the second half of the program, and Alan Greenspan was on the first half. And uh, he was sitting in his office, and uh, I went in to say hello to him, and he was absolutely delighted to see me, I'm pleased to say. And uh, other people that I've known well over the course of the years at the Fed, uh, Don Cohn in particular, um, whom I've known for many, many years, always been on uh, very good uh, terms with all of them, but um, we've just chosen over a long period of time to have a different interpretation of the way the world works. So I I would say I've been (laughs) not so much vilified as ignored.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that happens. Um, So something else that Someret said, he told his son once, I sense the future in my bones. It is not only about knowledge, it is signaled not in my head, but in my marrow. Mm -hmm. Anything to that? Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. Um, It's intuition in some fundamental sense, and I mean, you referred to uh, you know Homer's uh, study of uh, uh, interest rates over the centuries. Um, When you see something happen that has never happened before, like seventeen trillion dollars worth of debt that has a negative yield, it's your gut that tells you no, that there's something, there's something wrong here. And for years and years at the at the BIS, we used to talk about imbalances. And what did we mean by imbalances? And I, the honest truth was that it wasn't as well defined as the model builders would like it. I think we used to describe it as a as a sustained and significant
0: deviation from norms that had no obvious explanation. Now, one of you noted it was mad after you spoke in euphemisms. <laughs> Okay, this brings me to the promised uh, portion of this interview having to do with the fraught years of uh, 2002, 3, 4, 5, when uh, these uh, imbalances, shall we call them, were building, and they seemed to be building in the plain sight of every sentient human being, except almost everyone, turned a blind eye. Tell me about uh, the, uh, the arc of your learning. When did you catch on uh, when did, how to did describe the buildup of your realization about the, uh, the dimensions of our troubles? And uh, when did it strike you this was really, really bad?
1: Well I think my concern about, <clears throat> about debt and imbalances, you know things that are not in the standard models. It really goes back to the late 80s and the early 1990s, even before I came to the BIS. And it really had to do with observing Japan. And I remember when I was the deputy governor international at the Bank of Canada, I had a file on Japan that was like this. And it struck me at the time that some really bad things could happen, even when and at this point, the Bank of Canada was already committed to an inflation target. And we I think we were this we pronounced an inflation target, I think, three months after the, uh, the Bank of New Zealand. So we were we were early in the game, inflation targeting. But even at that, you know, I was looking at the Japanese thing, and what struck me was that these people had a huge current account surplus. They had no inflation to talk about, and they still got themselves into a huge problem. And that sort of got me starting to think about what is, how does that happen? And then, you know, then sort of went on thinking about the Great Depression. You know, you know better than I, there was no real inflation in the 1920s, right? There was no inflation in Southeast Asia before the Southeast Asian crisis. So all of this stuff about if you just keep inflation under control everything will be fine to me it was just common
0: sense hey, bill doesn't this speak again to the uh, uh, to the lack of confidence in our monetary masters and the institution of price discovery I mean they 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 are deathly afraid of deflation which I suppose is part and parcel of the debt pyramid that they have been instrumental in building or certainly in and helping to promote.
1: This is a thing, actually, I mean, I think this was a mistake that was made that goes back really to the 1980s. And it, again, it's a kind of analytical problem. And this is, I mean, this is part of the the Goodhart Pride on Book, of course, a good chunk of it. But the BIS has been saying something very similar, you know, really since the middle of the 1990s which is that the world was on a disinflationary path largely because aggregate supply had shifted outwards under the influence of globalization and baby boomers in the advanced market economies. You know, We had a huge positive supply shock and there was a whole pre-war literature on this stuff about how do you, what's the appropriate monetary response to positive supply shocks, productivity shocks? And there was a big debate about, you know, we know real wages have to go up with productivity growth. Well, real wages are W over P. Should W go up and the P go down? Or should W stay constant and the P go up? Um, Sorry, I got that backwards. The other way around, you know, which... Should the wages go up or should the prices go down? And uh, we've decided the wages should go up. But um, I think in retrospect, it probably would have been better to let the prices fall in the context of increased productivity arising from that positive supply side shock.
0: Isn't the history of capitalism one of positive supply shocks owing to the persistence of innovation and enterprise? And uh, so the, the great prosperity of the, uh, the, of the late nineteenth century would have been characterized in our present day, under this analytical regime, as one of uh, a very worrisome depression, deflation, right? And uh, central banks would have been in there, uh, uh, you know, printing away and pressing interest rates lower. And so I wonder, Bill. Now, now that I think of it. Uh, I recall now that there was not one single economist on the staff of the Bank of England until, uh, as a governor, in Norman uh, uh, was forced to bring one in. He said, "This guy, all right, your job is not to tell us what to do, but to explain to us why we did it." <laughs> Absolutely. But, but uh, uh, a very famous line actually yeah. by one of his advisors. Right, <laughs> Bill said it was not, of course, automatic. But uh, you know, at the point about the exaggeration, it was somewhat uh, uh, self-governing, and um, and the very absence of uh, meddling would seem to have explained some of that success. Most of course, there were drawbacks, but some of the net success of that regime. And now we have central banks with these computers, and with these staffs, and with these, this brain power. And there is an unending temptation to which everyone seems to yield to uh, devise new uh, techniques to intervene and manipulate and forestall trouble. And and, eh, is this again, are we not going backwards? And and, uh, so you have said that we ought to uh, prepare for uh, some reset of our way of thinking. And how about? again, reverting to the, uh, c- the coincidence of three great anniversaries, rethink the nature of money, and uh, which brings me to the question about modern money, not modern monetary theory, but modern money. And do you put any stock in the pro of Bitcoin who uh, say um, that what is wanted is a finite stock of something that can't be replicated through government intrusion and, and uh, And something that is uh, truly modern in its use of like that. So, uh, cryptocurrencies answer some of your concerns about the next thing to happen?
1: To be honest, I haven't thought as much about cryptocurrencies as I should have done. But I guess the thing that strikes me, and I mean, did a number of years ago, it's all very well to say that in some longer term sense, Uh, Bitcoin keeps its value in terms of purchasing power because there's a limited number of things that, sorry, there's a limited number of them that are going to be produced. But we know already, I think there's hundreds of these cryptocurrencies out there. So then the question becomes, have you got something that is in short supply and therefore maintains its value? Or have you got something that is easily substitutable by something else? Um, which, of course, is the problem that we've got with money as we define it at the moment. Is that there's so many different ways in which you can create stuff that looks like money and acts like money, and you know, which was the death of uh, monetary targeting. I mean, you remember that back in the 1970s. Definitely, the Bank <laughs> the Bank of Canada was very occupied, you know, very much preoccupied
0: with that too. Every shift adjusted M1B. The Fed had leapt through these hoops to define uh, ever more narrowly the, the relevant monetary aggregate. And every Friday at four o'clock, the Dow Jones Bell would sing, would ring, uh, you know, announcing some significant. I guess Thursday, not or Friday, announcing some uh, immensely important uh, piece of news from the monetary authorities. That would be that the the shift. M1A or B had risen 14 billion dollars. <laughs> Subsequently, to be revised to a decline of 14 billion dollars. <laughs>
1: it was how many angels? Eh? How many angels? I did a big piece for the Bank of Canada back around 1976-77 on monetary aggregates and their, you know, estimating demand for m- money functions, different aggregates and different sort of instruments to control them. But somebody reviewed it. I can't remember who. And they said, Mr. White has done everything with this data except take it down to the basement and beat it with a rubber hose. But it's the same kind, it's the same kind of thing. You know, you do a million regressions to get one that satisfies all the tests. And it was only later that I sort of realized, I mean, it's the same kind of thing as the analytical foundations of central banking. It was only later that I realized that it was an empirical farce. That if you keep on, you know, like if you keep on doing regressions long enough, you'll come up with one that satisfies every possible criterion. Nonsense, you know. <laughs> Simple as that. It is difficult as you as you look at the um, where we are to see an easy way out of it. Um, I suspect that there will be attempts in various places to go back to the post-World War II approach, which is basically to try to engineer a moderate degree of inflation, while at the same time keeping interest rates down through administrative and other kind of regulatory procedures. Uh, That may be the way in which we will manage to get the debt service burden down to a reasonable level. Um, even when evaluated at "quote unquote" normal interest rates, but um, even that in itself is um, a process that will be very difficult
0: to do. Does that not strike you as uh, as a form of theft? In this whole business, this 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 phrase, "financial repression," that people toss around so glibly, this involves uh, uh, taking from the saver. In the interest of uh, stabilizing a regime that has been uh, mismanaged by our arsonists, cooled firemen, and central bankers. Jim,
1: I think that the point is that the theft has already taken place. It's just that, in a certain sense, it has to do with the signs. Okay, You think about theft as all of a sudden it's negative. I've lost something. But the honest truth is, you think you have something which, in fact, you do not have because it has no value. So we're all living under an illusion of all of these assets that are actually worth what we say they're worth, and they're not. That's where the threat, in some fundamental sense, the theft has already occurred. The only question at the moment is, how do you allocate the losses? And of course, in a world where everybody is going to say "not me," that's going to make it very difficult. Bill, is there enough gold to go around? I haven't looked into the numbers, but uh, my my understanding is the price—the price price of gold would have to go to a very high level indeed to make it a a suitable base for today's monetary system.
0: Yeah. All right. Well. uh Bill White, what a pleasure it has been to be in your transatlantic company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's been a huge pleasure for me, too, and, uh, and uh, sa- sadly, talking about uh, talking about things that are not so pleasant, but um, anyway,
0: as, the, uh, as the, <laughs> the
1: English would say, you have to laugh.
0: Well, I should- Ladies and gentlemen of Real Vision, we have been in the company of the man who feels the future in the marrow of his bones. (laughs) Bill White, thank you again.
1: Uh, It's been a pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much for for hosting me.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. What's with the bow tie? I can't help but notice that not many people get the message that you have to wear a bow tie. You have to dress like you mean it, right? You can't walk around like in jeans or sneakers or stuff. No, you guys are cool.